Welcome to the Close Set Podcast. My name is Themistoclus Alexis, and today we will conclude our three-part series on an iconic and controversial director, Ilya Kazan. Christmas. I hope those of you who celebrated it had a wonderful holiday. I hope it was restful and stress-free. I, for one, had a lovely Christmas, not without some hiccups, but it was a good time, and I hope it was restful and restorative and joyous. Now, today, we will be wrapping up our series on Ilya Kazan. We're going to be looking at his later works, a handful of films he made later in his life, some of which were arguably his most personal works. Uh, We're going to look at a bit of his work as a novelist. We're going to try to have a look at Ilya Kazan, the man, perhaps more specifically his relationships with the women in his life and his infidelities. And we're also going to be looking at some allegations that surfaced about him uh, years after his passing. Before we get into all that, though, I would like to remind you, you can find us on the Spotify, the Apple Podcasts, and the Google Podcasts, and we're on Podbean as well. You can like, subscribe, leave comments, uh, catch up on our old episodes as well. I encourage you to do all of that. And if you would like to stay in touch with us, and stay in the loop as to what's coming up next and all that good stuff. You can follow us on the Instagram at Closed Set Podcast. That is Closed Set Podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, uh, recommendations, recommendations, uh, you can email us as well at closedsetpod at gmail.com. That is closedsetpod at gmail.com. And with all that housekeeping and formalities out of the way, let us boogie. Now... Let us begin with a film called Splendor in the Grass. We had left it with Wild River, which came out in 1960, and Kazan put this one out the year after. This was written by the iconic playwright William Inge. Kazan had actually staged his play The Dark at the Top of the Stairs on Broadway in the late 50s, so he was very familiar with Inge's work. And Inge wrote the screenplay for this, and he had also written classics like Come Back Little Sheba, Picnic, and Bus Stop. And so this story, this film is set in the Roaring Twenties. It's a time of prosperity in the United States, shortly before the the, uh, the crash of the Great Depression. And it is set in Kansas, and it follows Natalie Wood as Deanie and Warren Beatty as Bud. And the two of them are high school sweethearts. They're in their late teens. They're lovers. And it basically follows the both of them as they deal with parental pressure and sexual repression and the toll it begins to take on their relationship. You have Deanie, Natalie Wood's character, who adores Bud, Warren Beatty, her beau, to the point where her relationship with him is all-consuming. It's sacred to her. And they have yet to have sex and consummate their relationship. And you see this in, in the case of both characters. Their parents may mean well, all things considered, but much of what they tell them isn't really in their best interests, ultimately. And so you have Deanie, Natalie Wood's character. Her mother tells her that, you know, her desire is something to be repressed, and it's clear that Deanie's mother, played by Audrey Christie, is obviously not a sexual person. And she tells Deanie to sort of hold off on sex and that it's that desire is not something to be embraced, but to be sort of pushed down. Mom. Mm-hmm. Is it so terrible to have those feelings about a boy? 
No nice girl does. Doesn't she? No. No nice girl. But, Mom... Didn't... Didn't you ever... Oh, I mean... Didn't you ever feel that way about Dad? Your father never laid a hand on me until we were married. And then I... I just gave in because a wife has to. A woman doesn't enjoy those things the way a man does. She just lets her husband... come near her in order to have children. And on the other side of that, you have Bud, Warren Beatty's character, who comes from a, we a wealthy oil family. And his father, played by the great Pat Hingle, has basically mapped out his entire life for him. Bud basically wants a simple life. He seems happy with Deanie. He, he clearly loves her. He doesn't want to go to an Ivy League school. Doesn't have dreams of working alongside his father in the oil business. He basically just wants to be a rancher, a cattle rancher. And yet, Pat Hingle, his father, Ace Stamper, has basically mapped out his entire life for him. He tells him to put his relationship with Deanie to the side, to hold off on marrying her. He's going to go to Yale, he's going to graduate, and then come back to work alongside his father in the oil business, and the two of them can prosper together and all that good stuff. And there's a bit of a parallel there between Bud and his father Ace and Kazan himself. As we mentioned before, Kazan's father was a rug merchant. He sold rugs. And as per Greek tradition at that time, the expectation was that the eldest son take over the family business. And so you see a direct parallel here between Bud and his father Ace and Kazan and his own father. And so Bud is put under a tremendous amount of pressure from his father. And naturally he wants to please his father. While at the same time, he looks at his sister Ginny, played by Barbara Loden, as a bit of a cautionary tale. His sister is more of a rebellious type. To her credit, she wants to be her own person and go her own way. She's a flapper as well, which is basically, which is basically a feminist of the 1920s. They defied convention. They wore the, they bobbed their hair and wore it short. They wore short skirts, which by the standard of that time was basically just down to the knee, which isn't all that risque by today's standards, but you understand. Uh, flappers smoked as well. They drove cars. They wore pants occasionally. And so Bud's sister Ginny is a flapper, and her lifestyle, her desire to be her own person, and her promiscuity causes a lot of friction between her and their father. So, seeing his sister, combined with the pressure that his father is putting on him, all that sort of causes him to distance, him, distance himself from Deanie. He pushes her away. And because Deanie has already invested so much, she's put so much importance on their relationship and consummating it, and it's become all-consuming for her. Bud's distancing himself from her eventually pushes her to a bit of a mental break. Not a bit of a mental break, a full-on mental break, in fact. Deanie, tell me. What's been the matter the past few days? I'm sorry I've troubled you. I don't want to worry you. I don't want to worry anyone. Is it all on account of... because of Bud? Because he doesn't call for you anymore? 
I don't know. I don't know, Mom. I have a mind to call that boy and tell him. Don't you dare! Don't you dare, Mom! Oh, don't I'm you dare! Don't you dare! Hold on! Mom, you do something like that! I'll do something desperate! I will! I will, Mom! I will! Meanwhile, Bud does as was expected of him, although he basically sabotages his stint at Yale because he doesn't want to be there. And tragedy befalls him too. The Great Depression comes, his father loses everything, and I won't say what happens after that for Deanie and Bud, but eventually, after some time has passed, the two of them reunite, but not for long. The two of them seem to have moved on with their lives, and they have a bit of a strange encounter. Maybe not a strange encounter, but a very, uh, sort of, everything is very delicate, given their history, the trouble that the two of them have gone through the two of them basically had to put their feelings for each other to the side. Although, the film ends on a sweet note, because the two of them have moved on, they seem to be building their own lives for themselves, they're becoming their own people, and despite what this encounter conjures up for them, it seems as though, especially in Dini's case, that the two of them are accepting of their past, accepting of their shared experience, however tumultuous it was, and they can accept it without letting it define them. And the film really ends on a lovely note. See, things work out awful funny sometimes, don't they, Danny? <laughs> yes, they do. I hope you're going to be awful happy. I like you, but I don't think too much about happiness either. Now, what's the point, God? you got to take what comes. Yes. And it's interesting, this theme of purity. And it's another parallel between Splendor in the Grass, this film, and Kazan's film East of Eden, which we talked about in part two. Because you see this notion of purity for Deanie's character, Natalie Wood, it costs her a lot. It costs her her mental well-being, essentially. And you look at the film East of Eden, especially with Raymond Massey's character. He plays the father to James Dean and Richard Avalos, and his purity in East of Eden. He is basically too good a man. He's a deeply religious man, and he's, too, he's a Puritan to a fault. To the point where it, ends up, where it ends up costing him not just his marriage, but his relationship with his son, played by James Dean. And so it's an interesting look at that that whole notion, this not just a repression that Tola can take, but also just this idea of, of purity. And it's a wonderful film. The title of the film is actually taken from a Wordsworth poem called Intimations of Immortality. Though nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass, glory in the flower, we will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind. And like I said, William Inge wrote the script for this. And so Natalie Wood and Warren Beatty play the two leads. Natalie Wood had been acting since she was a child. She had gotten a lot of roles as a teenager as well. She got nominated for an Oscar for Rebel Without a Cause with James Dean. She had been in uh, The Searchers with John Wayne as well. And she was a, a super talent, although her career had hit a bit of a lull. And it, it's her performance in Splendor in the Grass in this film that basically got critics and studios and people in the know to sort of take her seriously as an adult actress. And she's wonderful in this, and she's really put through a lot, and she kills it. And she got nominated for an Oscar for Best Actress in this film, and rightfully so. Uh, unfortunately, Natalie Wood had a very tragic end to her life. She, uh, in 1981, at the age of 43, she died. She had been on a boat with her then-husband, Robert Wagner, 
and Christopher Walken was on the boat as well, and apparently she she basically fell off the boat. There's a lot of sort of loose ends and confusion surrounding her death, and there's some suspicion for some time that Robert Wagner may have had something to do with it, that she may have in fact been murdered. And I believe he is still a person of interest in the case, but in any case, she died far too soon, a very tragic death. Warren Beatty plays Bud, and this was actually his film debut. Warren Beatty, I am not a fan of him, to be honest. I've mentioned him a few times on the show so far. He has been in a ton of amazing films. Shampoo, Bonnie and Clyde, The Parallax View. However, that said, he's never really the best thing in any of his films. I think, honestly, I think he, his merits are far greater as a director and as a producer. I was never a huge fan of him as an actor, to be honest. He's in McCabe and Mrs. Miller as well, which is another fantastic film, Robert Altman film. That said, he's pretty good in this, I gotta say. Kazan really drew a great performance out of him. It was his film debut, but he, uh, apparently he was a pain in the ass on set, according to several reports. Apparently he and the, the crew didn't get along, and he and Kazan butted heads on at least one occasion that I know of. But in any case, and also, Warren Beatty, uh, for those who don't know, was a notorious Lothario. He was a, he was a ladies' man. And he and Natalie Wood ended up having a fling Although contrary to popular belief, it did not begin during the making of this film. There have been several accounts that sort of uh, dispel that notion. Natalie Wood was married to Robert Wagner at the time. Warren Beatty was, uh, was with Joan Collins. Contrary to popular belief, the two of them actually didn't begin seeing each other until after this film was made, so I've read. In any case, there are the two leads in this. Pat Hingle plays Warren Beatty's father, Ace, and he is fantastic in this. He is domineering. He seems to mean well, but again, it's this he is this strong, sort of dominant, patriarchal figure who really doesn't give anybody much of a say, not his wife, not his daughter, not his son. And Pat Hingle had actually done a fair bit of work with Kazan before this. He had been in the, his, a very successful play called J.B. on Broadway. He had been in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof as well. He had had a tiny part in On the Waterfront. So he and Kazan knew each other pretty well by this time. And if you watch the film, you'll see Pat Hingle walks with a limp. That is, in fact, a real limp, because while he was working on stage, I believe it was during uh, the run of JB on Broadway, he suffered a terrible accident that almost killed him. He fell down an elevator shaft in his building, and it left him with all kinds of injuries, nearly killed him. He was convalescing in it for quite some time. It took him a long time to recover from it. And so the limp that you see him with in Splendor in the Grass is real, and it was about as, that was the best he could do at that time. And he's wonderful in this. Audrey Christie, another wonderful performance, she plays Natalie Wood's mom, Deanie's mom, and it's her that plants this idea in Deanie's head that, that she should put her sexual desires to the side and that they're not, and that they're not something to be acted on. Barbara Loden is in this as well. She plays Ginny the sister to Warren Beatty's character, his flapper, rebellious sister, and she is fantastic in this. Uh, Barbara Loden, like I said in part two, was, uh, she ended up becoming Kazan's second wife. They weren't husband and wife at this time, although they had been, they had had a long affair before the two had become husband and wife, and they were both married at the time. But anyway, Barbara Loden's going to come up a little more later, and it's a fantastic performance from her in this. Zora Lampert shows up as well, another New York actress. She's in a, she shows up a little later in the film, and she plays a woman that uh, Warren Beatty meets during his short-lived stint at Yale. Uh, Zora Lampert was in Opening Night, the great John Cassavetes film, which we talked about in that episode. She was also in Bye Bye Braverman, the Sidney Lumet film, a wonderful New York actress, and she's still around. She's, uh, she's in her 80s. And lastly, Sandy Dennis makes her film debut in this as one of Natalie Wood's classmates. Sandy Dennis went on to win an Oscar a few years after 
for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. She won a Best Supporting Actress, and she shows up in this as well. William Inge has a small part as uh, the town reverend. He's in a couple scenes. And so that about does it for Splendor in the Grass. It was shot in New York, although it was set in Kansas. And so interiors were shot in the studio in New York. Exteriors were shot a little all over. There were some in Staten Island, some in the Bronx. Uh, I believe some were taken of the City College of New York as well. So they shot it pretty far from Kansas. Um, and like I said before, Natalie Wood was nominated for an Oscar for Best Actress, and rightfully so. This was 1961, which means Sophia Loren ended up winning for a film called Two Women. And William Inge won an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. William Inge, like I said before, an iconic American playwright, and yet another that Kazan had worked with over the course of his career. And Kazan had some, uh, some interesting things to say about William Inge. He had intense psychological problems. I mean, he was a homosexual. He was the product of psychoanalysis. And I understood him very well. I was psychoanalyzed twice. And someone said I was the only happy person they knew who wouldn't psychoanalyze him. That may be true. But he was not, a, not happy. He was constantly self-questioning, constantly felt bad, constantly was uh, frightened of the reception of his work. And he finally committed suicide when his, when his uh, plays were, were panned here in New York City. And that is all I got for Splendor in the Grass. And the film that followed is arguably Kazan's most personal work. It's a film called America, America. This came out in 1963. And Kazan wrote the script himself. He was known for working closely with writers on scripts and collaborating with them on it. He had actually written a book about this himself in 1962. And then wrote the screenplay for this film. And it follows a young man named Stavros Topuzoglu, a Greek man in the late 1890s, and it follows his journey, his odyssey, because it really is an odyssey. It's a long journey with many, many setbacks. And you follow him as he makes his way from his village in rural Ottoman Turkey, first to Kostadinupoli, and eventually to America. And the Ottoman regime of the time is very hostile toward the Greek and Armenian minorities in the area. And after the Turkish authorities basically massacre the Armenian community in Stavros's village, his father gives him a mission to take the family's prized possessions, make his way to Kostadinopoli, meet up with a relative there, and get set up in the family rug business, and then send for his family one by one. And it's a long and perilous journey, with all kinds of trials and setbacks and obstacles. You see him dealing with treacherous traveling partners, uh, arranged marriages, unreliable relatives, all of this so he can make his way to the United States which he really only knows of by hearsay and pictures and magazine articles and such. But he is enamored with this idea of America, the idea of making your own way. And again, this relationship with the father comes up, which is a recurring theme in Kazan's work, like we mentioned before. His father puts this pressure on him because Stavro is the oldest son, and he expects him to carry out this mission. And again, the father is mapping out the course of his eldest son's life. And while Stavro has other designs, he has designs on making it to America and, of course, sending for his family. Much of his journey, much of what drives him, is to please his father and to make something of himself for his father to be proud of him. And another important thing of the film is a loss of innocence. Stavros is a young man, and he is an innocent, and yet he is, he is basically forced to do a variety of morally questionable things. Also, he could make it to America. And the road to Costadinopoli alone from his village is very perilous. And from the time he leaves his village and eventually makes it to America, he has to kill. He agrees to an arranged marriage with a woman he doesn't love. He later has to woo a married woman that he doesn't love. And those are just a few of the things he has to do. Put some of these in your shirt. No. Another piece. You will need it later. No one's looking. 
You have to look out for yourself in this world, you know. The only bad times I had was when I was soft or human. You can't afford to be human. People take advantage. For instance, you. You smile all the time. People take it. Forgive me for saying so. People take it as a sign of weakness. And there's some commentary on gender roles as well. And you see this at several points in the film. The men call all the shots. And the women are basically subjugated and reduced to little more than basically extensions of their husbands. They run the home, they run the kitchen, they basically keep to themselves. Their husbands are chosen for them. They really don't get a say in much of anything. And so it's a story that says a lot. And interestingly enough, we'll get into the cast. It's a cast of unknowns, some with more experience than others. And it pays off here, because the lead actor is played by a Greek man named Stati Yalili, and he was not a professional actor. And it's interesting reading the reviews and what the critics had to say about the film. Some of them were actually quite impressed with his performance. Some of them were not so much, although the thing is, he has a lot of raw talent. He's an unvarnished actor. But given what he has to go through over the course of this journey, it works. And it's a great decision by Kazan to go with an unknown as opposed to an established actor because there's a, there's a sort of bias that goes one way or another, right? If it's a star that you recognize immediately, your mind is made up. You know how you feel about this actor that you've recognized from a, from a million or one other things. And it'll sort of taint your view of the character and the story and the things that he's forced to do in order to make it to America. So it was very ingenious to go with a, an unknown cast in this. And like I said, Stati Yaleli plays the, the lead, Stavro, and he's basically in every scene of this three-hour film. And Kazan had talked about meeting him and hearing Stati tell him a story about his father and seeing that he had tremendous emotional depth in him, and that's what pushed him to cast him in the, in the part of Stavro. He was really just a porter around the office of a, of a Greek director. He got to know him, and he began talking to me about the death of his father. The Civil War in Greece was one of the most horrible things in history. They were brother killing brother all the time. And he was beaten, I won't say by which side, I remember now, but by one side. And he was beaten around the kidneys. And beaten and beaten in the kidneys, which is one of the worst places to hit somebody because the kidneys fracture and break. And you begin to bleed everywhere through all the apertures of the body. And Stavros held his father while his father died. And I felt from that, that uh, uh, from that story, I saw tremendous emotion in the fellow and tremendous feeling towards a father again, which is uh, a lot of what that film's about. The rest of the cast, Frank Wolf, was an American actor. He plays an Armenian friend of Stavro in their village in Ottoman Turkey. Frank Wolf was a great character actor, and film nerds know him from a variety of things. He did a, he did a lot of work with Roger Corman, who was the king of B-movies. Uh, he was in a lot of spaghetti westerns as well. He shows up in Once Upon a Time in the West. He was in uh, a lot of European productions as well. Beyond that, he was in the uh, Fernando de Leo film, Melano Cal Calibro 9. So film nerds know, know and love Frank Wolf. <laughs> Harry Davis plays Stavros' father, Isaac. And it's him who gives him this mission to go to Costadinupoli and basically appoints him as, uh, as basically the provider to be for their family. Uh, Elena Karam plays Stavros' mother, Vaso. Estelle Hemsley plays Stavros' grandmother. And she was in Edge of the City. She was in Take a Giant Step. And he goes to her hoping she can give him money for his journey. But what she gives him instead is a knife so he can arm himself and protect himself if need be over the course of the journey. And even though he's frustrated that that's all she has to give him, it turns out that she was right. Uh, Grigori Rozaki, another Greek actor, he plays uh, a friend that Stavro encounters at several points over the course of his journey. And he ultimately proves instrumental 
in getting Stavro past U.S. immigration and into America so he can start over. Lou Antonio, his real name was Adonio. He was an American of Greek extraction. And he plays a travel partner early on in Stavro's journey. And he proves to be a freeloader and treacherous and selfish and devious. It's a piece of garbage, really. And <laughs> and um, he sets Stavro back a lot over the course of his journey. He costs him much of his family's possessions, his money, and ultimately leaves him with next to nothing and even tries to take what little he's left Stavro after their, their stint together. And it's him that pushes Stavro to formally lose his innocence and kill. Salem Ludwig shows up in this. He plays a relative of Stavro in Kostadinupoli. It's with him that he is supposed to unite and uh, get going in the rug business, although he proves to be a lazy shithead, ultimately. And it's him who ends up brokering this sort of arranged marriage of, of convenience for him. He pushes Stavro to marry for money in Kostadinupoli. And Salem Ludwig was a New Yorker. He was, a, he was blacklisted which is interesting given Kazan's history with uh, the House of Un-American Activities Committee and the Hollywood Blacklist and naming people from the group theater that he uh, that had been communists with him in the 30s. We talked about all that in part two. If you'd like to go back and listen, I highly recommend you do. Interesting choice here, casting Salem Ludwig in this. And Ludwig was a member of the actor's studio as well, so he and Kazan knew each other from there, presumably. Uh, John Marley shows up in this, another one of my favorites, a great New York actor. He plays Jack Waltz in The First Godfather, the man who wakes up with a horse's head in his bed. He was in Love Story. He was in Faces, the great John Cassavetes film, which we talked about in our first episode. A wonderful actor who was in a bunch of things. Cat Ballou as well. And he plays a friend of Stavros in Kostadinupoli. Stavros ultimately has to break from, from his relative. There's really not much he can do for him. And he decides to basically earn the money he needs for passage to America. But he has to do these grueling and exhausting manual labor jobs. And he's basically living on the street. And John Marley is a friend of his that he makes during this time. Paul Mann is a fantastic, fantastic actor. He really is great in this. He was a Canadian actor, and he plays his father-in-law-to-be. So like I said, in Costadinupoli, a marriage is brokered, and Stavro is set to marry one of Paul Mann's daughters. And Paul Mann is a wealthy rug merchant. He's well off. And Stavro really only wants to marry her so he can get the money to go to America. And much like Stavro's father, his father-in-law-to-be, Paul Mann's character, is mapping out his entire life before him where they run the family business together, with Stavro eventually taking it over. His wife-to-be gives him children, ideally sons. And when they're not running the business, they spend their days eating, drinking, eating to bursting, really. You, you see them. You see the men of, of Paul Mann's house after dinner or after a meal. They all unbutton their pants and sit in the living room and just shoot the breeze. And it's a, it's a traditional life, one that Stavro doesn't really have a say in, and it's not what he wants. And that idea of settling... And just carrying on tradition with not much else, it, it scares him. He doesn't want anything to do with it. But give me two sons. Give me two sons and I'll give you the business, everything. And watch the years pass. Huh. You'll get old. I'll be old. And we'll sit here together, you and I. And we'll drink and we'll eat and we'll unbutton the tops of our trousers. And we'll take a nap right here, side by side, a little nap. The women will muzz from the kitchen. And then we'll wake and play a little backgammon. And soon it'll be time for a little who's who, some olives, a little cheese. And all my children, all your children will be here together. And the woman that Stavro is set to marry 
in Kostadinopoli is played by Linda Marsh, and she is wonderful in this. And she picks up on the fact that he may not want to marry her, he may not have feelings for her, because he's distant with her. Like I said, he's doing it for the money. And all she wants to do is make him happy. And in basically the only conversation that the two of them have alone, the two of them basically air it all out. And she comes to understand him to her credit. And she is wonderful in this, Linda Marsh. The baby had teeth. The teeth hurt. The baby turned into you. I mean, it, it was you. And you pulled back. And you looked at me with, with such disappointment. And, and then you walked away. And I never saw you again. Do you believe in dreams? Catherine Balfour is in this as well. She plays an older woman, an older Armenian woman, who now lives in America with her husband, Stavro Mitran Kostadinopoli. She seems to be sexually frustrated. She's in basically a loveless marriage. And Stavro tries to woo her, and she ultimately proves, she first proves instrumental in getting him passage to America, and later proves detrimental <laughs> in getting him past U.S. immigration. I won't go into the details, but she is another important figure in Stavro's journey to America. And Robert H. Harris plays her husband. And so that's the cast. Kazan does a bit of narration at the beginning and the end of the film. And like he says at the opening, the film is based on his, his own uncle's journey to America. And I think it's a show of gratitude to that experience. And also a show of gratitude to his father. Like I said, the two of them had a complicated relationship. But Kazan has said later in life that he was, despite all that, he was grateful to his father for bringing him to America. In the end, I loved my father and pitied him and looked after him and took care of him and did everything in the world. And I understood how much I owe him, the fact that he brought me to this country. I mean, I wouldn't be here except for my father. So what can I say? I'd be, I'd be selling rugs in some bazaar in Turkey or someplace. Uh, I don't know what the hell I'd be doing, but I wouldn't be here except for my father. And it's interesting because at the end of the film, I mean, I'm spoiling a little bit of it, but at the end of the film, Stavro finally makes it to America. He gets there. He finally gets to make his own way, build his own life, and finally get started so that he can eventually send for his family. And when he finally clears U.S. immigration with a little bit of help, one last push from Grigori Rozaki's character, he gets out of U.S. immigration, he's in New York City, and you see him kissing the ground with the Statue of Liberty in the background. Now, a lot of critics didn't like that scene. They thought it was a little much. But I think it works, and I, I think it's something that someone who's actually fled an oppressive regime or a war-torn land can understand. They can appreciate something like that. And because I himself had said before that as an immigrant, being an immigrant and having fled a place that was in turmoil, he claimed that immigrants had a greater appreciation for America than Native Americans, people who were born and raised in America. And I think there's some truth to that. And so the film was shot by Haskell Wexler, who is a beloved cinematographer. He shot Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in the Heat of the Night. Uh, the film was shot on location in Turkey and in Greece. It was shot pretty much documentary style, very naturalistic, shot in black and white, because then it goes back to black and white for this, which I think is perfectly fitting. And they initially went to Turkey, because went back to Turkey, where he was born, uh, although they had some trouble with censorship, and from what I understand, the, the authorities, I guess, were 
they were a little wary over the production and maybe they were afraid of how the regime or their their history would be portrayed on film and so ultimately the uh, the production had to be moved to Greece and so that's where they finished the film I can't tell you how personal it was because it was my return to Turkey where we met onerous heavy that means conditions of censorship for the first time I recognized that the legends and history of my family were important dramatic material for me and the film was edited by Dee Dee Allen. We talked about her in our George Roy Hill episode. She worked on Slapshot and Slaughterhouse-Five, two great films that I love a lot. Uh, she also worked on The Hustler, Bonnie and Clyde, Dog Day Afternoon, tons and tons of classics. And the film today is considered a masterpiece. I think the reception when it came out was a little more mixed. But uh, even still, Stathi Yaleli and Kazan both won Golden Globes. Yaleli won Most Promising Newcomer. And Paul Mann, Linda Marsh, and Grigori Rozaki were all nominated for Best Supporting Actor and Best Supporting Actress awards at the Golden Globes as well, and rightfully so. Uh, at the Oscars, the film won Best Art Direction, got nominated for Best Picture, and Kazan got nominated both for his direction and for his screenplay. And unfortunately, right around the time of the release, I believe, uh, right, right before the film came out, Kazan's first wife, Molly Day Thatcher, died suddenly of a brain hemorrhage. She was 56 years old, and the two of them had been married for over 30 years. They had been married in 1932. They had met at Yale, and they had had four children together. And so after her death, much like what he did after he testified before the House of Un-American Activities Committee, Kazan uh, went back to work. He threw himself into his work, and he had been appointed the director of Lincoln Center's new repertory theater. And it was part of this, this endeavor that reunited him with Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller had written All My Sons, A View from the Bridge, and Death of a Salesman. He and Kazan had brought All My Sons and Death of a Salesman to life on stage, to much fanfare, a lot of success, a lot of accolades, wonderful productions. Uh, but their friendship was hurt after Kazan testified before the House of American Activities Committee. They had been in contact sporadically in the years following that, although their friendship was never the same. And so when Kazan went to direct at the Lincoln Center Repertory Theater, he and Miller reunite for a play called After the Fall, which is based on Miller's relationship with Marilyn Monroe, the, their divorce. And what's interesting about it is that Kazan and Marilyn Monroe had had an affair, and it was Kazan who introduced Arthur Miller and Marilyn Monroe, and the two of them were later married. They were married for a few years. And Barbara Loden, in this theater production of After the Fall, plays the character that is based on Marilyn Monroe. And so you have Kazan, who had an affair with Marilyn Monroe, introduced her to Arthur Miller, and you have Kazan's lover, I guess, or partner at this time, because he and Barbara Loden had been having an affair. So you have Kazan directing Barbara Loden as the woman Kazan had had an affair with and then introduced to Arthur Miller. The whole thing is very incestuous, really. And um, Monroe had, uh, had died a couple of years prior to this production, and Barbara Loden uh, actually won a Tony for her performance, and the production starred her and Jason Robards and Ralph Meeker. Uh, that said, Kazan's stint at the Lincoln Center Repertory Theater was very short-lived. He, uh, he didn't hold that post for very long. And uh, after that, he basically stopped working in the theater entirely and dedicated himself to writing. It was something that he had always wanted to do, and it was a craft that he had great admiration for. I always thought that a writer was the greatest form of art, a writer. I always admired them, I always looked up to them. I used to read a book every day, and uh, my admiration for them never stopped. All the time I was an actor and everything else, I, in my, deep in my heart, I wanted to be a writer. I don't think I'm a uh, first-rate writer or anything like that, but uh, I'd rather be a third-rate writer than a first-rate director. You can't, you can't do anything about it. I mean, it's just a deep down in me. I wrote a lot of plays. I wrote, they were one-act plays. They were plays usually that uh, mirroring my own ambivalence could be directed either as a comedy or a tragedy. 
And like I said before, he had worked with many of uh, many of the, the screenwriters he had worked with, he'd collaborated with on their scripts, Tennessee Williams, John Steinbeck, but he didn't really commit to writing himself until, basically until America, America. And after his wife's death and his short stint at Lincoln Center, he basically threw himself into writing full time and he became a novelist. And one thing he particularly enjoyed about being a novelist was that was how simple it was compared to getting a film together, going around, speaking to producers, pitching a story, raising money. Kazan hated all that. And uh, he quite liked that all you needed to do was sit down in front of a typewriter and just start plugging away. I have a great reluctance to go to people and say, please give me money, please help me, please give... It's insulting, it's demeaning to me, it gets me mad, and I don't like to do it with a typewriter. All you need is this and this, and, and you, you don't have to beg anybody for anything. And so the first novel he wrote was called The Arrangement. This came out in 1967. It was not very well received by the critics. A lot of them didn't like it, although it did become a bestseller, so it was successful commercially, but not critically. And this novel ultimately proved to be the basis for his next film, titled The Arrangement, which came out six years after uh, America, America. This came out in 1969, and Kazan directed, wrote, and produced this film himself. It tells the story of a man who is wealthy and works in advertising. He lives in Los Angeles, and one day he attempts suicide by driving his convertible underneath a tractor trailer. And this man is played by Kirk Douglas. And following his suicide attempt, he continues unraveling, while at the same time trying to find some kind of meaning in his life. And you see him, he's got the big house in Los Angeles, he's got an empty marriage, Deborah Kerr plays his wife. Uh, and he's an ad man, so he's basically has a job where he is competent and respected, but he's a bullshit artist, basically. Now let's face it, the smokers of the world are scared. And without mentioning the dirty word, we know what they're scared of, right? And frankly, gentlemen, it's going to take more than good advertising to change their mind. It's going to take a product, and I say you gentlemen have that product, the Zephyr cigarette. Not only that, he has a passionate and sort of tumultuous affair with a co-worker of his, a much younger co-worker played by Faye Dunaway. And it is not long after their affair is over that he attempts suicide. And so this, the story is told a lot through flashbacks, especially at the beginning when he's exploring his affair with Faye Dunaway, how it was born. And then after this sort of mental break, you basically see a guy that doesn't know what he wants. His wife is still in his life. She keeps wanting to make a go with it despite his infidelities. You have Kirk Douglas's father, who isn't well, played by Richard Boone, and you come to find out that Kirk Douglas's character, Eddie, is in fact of Greek descent, and that he's anglicized his name on several occasions. And it explores his complicated relationship with his father, yet again, we go back to that recurring theme in Kazan's work. And the father in this film is basically a monster, and you see Kirk Douglas trying to care for him while his health is failing, but he's also got some resentment buried deep down that goes back many years, and it, it comes out eventually. And, of course, over the course of the film, you see you have Kirk Douglas and Deborah Kerr, his wife. They have a psychoanalyst. They have a family lawyer, both of whom are pretty steady presences in their lives, but really don't do much good for them. They don't, they especially don't, whatever advice they give basically seems to favor Kirk Douglas's wife, not Douglas himself. But in any case, uh, this is not a good film, I gotta say. It's very self-indulgent. It's basically Kazan just being fascinated with himself. And it's a little all over the place. It's a guy who doesn't know what he wants and who's struggling to find some sort of meaning in his life, apparently. But this whole this whole sort of two-hour journey that you're taking on, it, it gets pulled in a handful of different directions and it doesn't really amount to anything. And it's kind of masturbatory, to be honest. 
And so let's get into the cast real quick. And it's and that's another thing that's disappointing about it is the fact that it's it's a fantastic cast. It's a really great assembly of talent, for the most part at least. But yeah, this one's a dud. Kirk Douglas is the lead. And Kirk Douglas, for those of you who don't know, was Michael Douglas's father. Three-time Oscar nominee, I believe. He was in Paths of Glory and Spartacus, The Bad and the Beautiful, Champion, A Million and One Things, Out of the Past. Uh, Deborah Kerr is in this. She plays his wife. She was nominated for six Oscars over the course of her career. Wonderful actress. And... She's clearly a little uptight. She's obviously sexually frustrated. And I guess Kazan paints her as a lot of these sort of affluent L.A. housewives. And yet, despite all of her husband's fuckery and his infidelity and all that, she remains resolute to sort of make this marriage work somehow. She thinks she can she can salvage something from the wreckage and, uh, and rebuild a, a relationship with Kirk Douglas. Faye Dunaway plays Gwen, the woman with whom Kirk Douglas is having an affair, the woman he is obsessed with, uh, and basically the woman who kind of kept him alive a little bit. It's interesting, he's attracted to her, I think, because she sees through him. She has his number. I think that's what draws him to her initially. But their relationship takes a turn for the worse. And after Kirk Douglas attempts suicide and sort of begins unraveling, he tracks her down. He still wants her in his life. Although he still wants his wife in his life as well. He can't decide between the two. And that's another thing that sort of parallels to Kazan himself. He's talked about how he likes the stability of a home. He liked being married. He liked having children. He liked having that sort of, that rock, that anchor in his life. And yet, he also enjoyed having having love affairs, basically. He said he, in fact, that he needed them because they kept him from sort of stagnating. It was a way to keep him sort of, to keep him alive and to keep him from sort of falling prey to the mundanities of regular life. <laughs> Which, I don't know, you make of that what you will. But in any case... Uh, and Faye Dunaway was already a star by this. By the time this film was was made. She had been in uh, Bonnie and Clyde in 1967. She had been in The Thomas Crown Affair, the original with Steve McQueen. Uh, and she later did a bunch of other great films. Chinatown, Network, Barfly. A wonderful actress. She's still around. Uh, Richard Boone plays uh, Kirk Douglas's father, his Greek immigrant father. And like Kazan's father, he, he plays a rug merchant. Uh, and I don't like him in this. He is miscast. For one thing... Uh, I gotta say, most of the time when a non-Greek actor is cast in a Greek role uh, on film or in TV, uh, they pretty much miss the mark all the time. It's easy to tell that they're, that they're faking the funk. They put on some fucking generic foreign accent. They do a bunch of shouting and they think that, you know, they think they're being authentic. Richard Boone, not a bad actor. He was in the series Have Gun, Will Travel for many years. He had worked with Kazan before on Man on a Tightrope, which we talked about in part two. Um, but he was not right for this, and he plays he plays Kirk Douglas's father. And oddly enough, he is actually a little younger than he was actually a little younger than Kirk Douglas. Hume Cronin shows up in this. The great Canadian actor was married to Jessica Tandy for many years. Was in the great Jules Dassin film Brute Force. Uh, he shows up in The Postman Always Rings twice as well with John Garfield and Lana Turner. He plays the family lawyer, and he is great. Harold Gould shows up. We talked about him a little bit on our George Roy Hill episode because he was in The Sting. Uh, he was also in the sitcom Rhoda with Mallory Harper. And Michael Murphy, who did a ton of work with Robert Altman, he shows up in this as a, as a priest. And Barry Sullivan has a tiny part, shows up in a scene. And he and Kirk Douglas had actually been in The Bad and the Beautiful together many years prior. So that is the main cast. And Kazan actually wanted to work with Brando on this. He wanted to cast him in the lead as Eddie in the Kirk Douglas part. The two of them hadn't worked together since On the Waterfront 15 years before this. I believe... Kazan's testimony to the HUAC didn't sit well with Brando, and it had made him reluctant to work with him. But now here we are with the arrangement many years later, Kazan wanted Brando to do it, and Brando apparently gave some excuse that 
because Martin Luther King had been killed in 1968, presumably when this film was being made. He didn't want to make a film so close to the assassination of Martin Luther King. Kazan suspected that this was just an excuse because by this time Mar Marlon Brando had begun gaining weight. He was losing his hair. And so I guess he just had a hunch that Brando turned it down because he was self-conscious. But in any case, Kirk Douglas ended up getting cast. And we talked about the parallels between this film or this character and, and Kazan's life. Again, anglicizing his real name, Kazan's birth name was Kazajoglu, and it was changed to Kazan when they came to America. Again, the complicated relationship with the father, who is a rug merchant, uh, the infidelities, this idea that he needs his wife and his girlfriend in his life. Again, Kazan was married to his first wife for over 30 years, but also had many, many love affairs over the course of their marriage. Again, the parallels are obvious. This is very much, again, another very personal work for Kazan, but unlike America, America, it is very self-indulgent, and uh, it falls apart. It's a dud, really, and it was not well received. I wanted to be a writer, so I went to another analyst. I said, don't give me that shit about I'm ha I should be happy and I'm fine. I said, no, I want to be a writer. Help me be a writer. And it went on for about a year and a half. Well, the things I said to him about myself, the things I said to him about my past, about my parents, about my love affairs, about my wife and all that are the arrangement. And it turned out to be the same kind of thing that many, many men went through in their lives. It had a tremendous emotional appeal to other men who were successful but not successful, uh, unhappy about their success, dissatisfied with their success. And so, yeah, I've already talked too much about this film, so I'd like to move on to the next. The next one he made, I believe he redeemed himself with this one, and this is a very different turn for him. Uh, this next film is called The Visitors. This came out in 1972. And The Visitors follows a Vietnam vet who's played by James Woods, and he gets an unexpected visit from two former friends who are also Vietnam vets. He gets an unexpected visit from them after he had informed on them during the war for raping and killing a civilian Vietnamese girl. What did she look like? She was young, 15 or 16, pretty. I guess that's why she was hiding. That's, that's what her mother said at the court-martial. A couple of miles up the road, Nickerson took her into the tall grass. The sound she made was... After a while, it was like... Uh, it was like Mac down there. It was just... just whining. And then uh, Riley went next. And Josephson and Tony. And then they were waiting for me to do it. Well, I couldn't move. I mean, it didn't take any thought, any bravery. I, I just couldn't walk. James Wood's character had reported them. There was a court-martial. They got jail time. And so now these two guys show up at his doorstep. They haven't seen each other since the court-martial. They come unannounced. They don't state their intentions, although immediately... The viewer and James Woods and his wife, played by Patricia Joyce, his girlfriend rather, everyone is immediately made uneasy. And you follow these handful of characters as they spend a day together. And the father of Patricia Joyce's character joins the bunch. He was a World War II veteran. He has, doesn't have much respect for his son-in-law, James Woods. And he actually ends up bonding with, with these two veterans and ends up prolonging their stay. And that only helps add to the discomfort and add to the tension, right? Football is a great game. Elemental. Because it's a conflict. That's what life is about. 
Isn't it? If you make it. No, it's life against death. Like in Vietnam, we see just one corner of it above the surface. You're mixing your metaphors, Harry. Look at a football field. One team's got one color jersey, another team's got another color. That's easy to see. But the world is set up the same way. Communists on one side and us on the other. If you'd face that, look at Vietnam in that context, you'd understand it. And the film feels very much like a play. It takes place mostly in the home of James Woods and Patricia Joyce over the course of a day. And the tension builds, and there's sexual tension between Steve Railsback's character, one of the vets, and Patricia Joyce's character. And you watch the story play out until there is a violent and disturbing climax confrontation at the end of it. And so the main cast, was James Woods, like I said, this was his first film. James Woods was in A Million and One Things. He was in Casino and Ghosts of the Mississippi and Salvador, Videodrome. And this was his first film. He was in his 20s. Patricia Joyce plays his, uh, his lady. And they have a child together. This was her, her, her first film as well, although she had, she had done some work on TV before. Patrick McVeigh plays her father, who, like I said, doesn't have much respect for James Woods. He's a World War II veteran. He bonds with the other two vets over their shared experience in combat. And he's an older guy. He's hitting the bottle pretty hard. And he basically works as a novelist, cranking out shitty Western novels. Steve Railsback and Chico Martinez are the two vets that show up unannounced at their doorstep. Steve Railsback, this was his first film as well. He was in Cockfighter, the Monty Hellman film with Warren Oates. He also played Charles Manson in the Helter Skelter miniseries in the 70s. Uh, and like I said, there's a lot of sexual tension between him and Patricia Joyce. And it's a great performance from Steve Rosbach because you never know. You know his intentions are not good. But at the same time, he's very unpredictable. You don't know how he's going to react. You don't know what he's going to do next. And it's uh, he is excellent in this. And Chico Martinez is very good in this as well. This was also his first film. So a cast mostly of unknowns. Patrick McVeigh was pretty much the only one who was an established actor. And he had been in North by Northwest and banged the drum slowly. And it was basically a film that brought the horrors of the Vietnam War to America. And at an interesting time as well, the early 70s, the war was winding down in Vietnam. And like I said, it feels very much like a play just because of the, these close quarters, these tight parameters. And the film was actually written by Ilya Kazan's son, Chris. And it was based on a story that had shown up in The New Yorker. The story had been written by Daniel Lang in 1969. And uh, he had later written the book Casualties of War. And it's based on an incident that is called the incident on Hill 192. And it was based on a true story, and much like in the film, it was a, a group of soldiers that had kidnapped, raped, and murdered a young Vietnamese woman. And one of the members of their platoon brought them up for justice. He informed on them. Again, much like on the waterfront and Kazan's testimony to the HUAC, the story of the informer comes up again. And so in real life, in this true story, these four soldiers were brought for justice, and I believe they all got jail time. I believe one of them ended up getting acquitted on some kind of technicality, something like his Fifth Amendment rights were violated, and his, it made his confession inadmissible or some such. But it was based on a true story, and although these soldiers, these two soldiers in the film, have done a terrible thing that is impossible to justify, they are portrayed with a certain humanity. They're not portrayed as just monsters. It came from a newspaper article about two soldiers who had been, so to say, informed on, uh, who had killed the civilians in Vietnam. And they came back to talk, uh, to settle accounts with the man who'd, uh, who'd uh, brought them up for justice. And uh, I, I liked the theme because both sides were right. Uh, there, it was, there was sympathy on both sides. And it's a very indie production as well. It was shot entirely on Kazan's country home, on his country estate in Connecticut. 
it was shot for less than $200,000. And again, it was kind of a, not a response, but it was following the arrangement, which had a much bigger budget. And Faye Dunaway's fee alone, she was a big star by then. Her salary was exorbitant. So after putting this elaborate production together with this all-star cast and just having it fail, Kazan basically made an indie film. They worked with, like I said, a very limited budget. They had a skeleton crew of just a handful of people. And oddly enough, Kazan was actually accused of union busting because James Woods and Steve Railsback, like I said, this was their the first film for both of them. And so because they didn't have any film experience, they didn't have any, any on-screen experience, they, they weren't in the union, they weren't in the Screen Actors Guild. And so and because Kazan hired them, he was basically accused of union busting. But it's a, it's a weird thing with the union as well, or with the film industry. I've mentioned, I've talked about this before in past episodes. It's a strange Catch-22, where it's like you can't get in the union unless you get work, but you can't get work unless you're in the union. It's a strange arrangement in the industry. But in any case, Kazan got a bit of flack for this. And it's a very good film. Like I said, I love the fact that it's... I love how intimate it is. The performances are great. Steve Railsback especially is excellent. James Woods is very good as always. And again, I love that it feels like a play. I love that there's some nuance there as well. And uh, yeah, I highly recommend it. It's one of the lesser known films in the Kazan catalog. But uh, I like it very much. One of the, one of the better films he made towards the end of his, his career. And so after this, Kazan just kept writing fiction through the 70s. He wasn't nearly as prolific in this time of, of his life, on screen at least, uh, as he had been early in his career. Like I said, uh, after his testimony to the HUAC, he kept working in the theater, kept working in the films. He basically threw himself into his work uh, and was very prolific. But in this stage in his career, from I guess the the early 60s onwards, writing and fiction became uh, his priority and he wasn't uh, he wasn't making films nearly as often. And so he continues writing through the 70s. And again, it's this fascination with himself. Much of his work, much of his fiction is based on his own life, his own experience. Until the mid-70s, in 1976, he released what was basically his last film, The Last Tycoon. And this was produced by Sam Spiegel. The two of them had worked together on On the Waterfront over 20 years prior. And so The Last Tycoon is based on an unfinished novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald. If you don't know who F. Scott Fitzgerald is, shame on you. Second, he wrote The Great Gatsby the American classic, and he died in 1940. And so he hadn't finished the novel, although it had been prepared and edited somewhat uh, for publication the year after in 1941. So even though the book wasn't finished, it did still see the light of day. And the script was written by Harold Pinter, iconic British playwright, wrote all kinds of great works. Betrayal, The Homecoming, The Caretaker, which is one of my favorites, No Man's Land, The Birthday Party, and he did a lot of work on screen as well, wrote a bunch of screenplays, directed a great film called Butley, which is one of my favorites. In any case, he wrote the script for this, and yet, an, yet another seminal playwright that Kazan worked with over the course of his career. And it follows Robert De Niro as a young film producer named Monroe Starr. He's the head of production at a big studio in Hollywood in the 1930s. This is the golden age of Hollywood, the golden age of the studio system. And it follows him over the course of the film. He's putting out fires, he's placating stars, he has to deal with a labor organizer who's trying to get the, writers, the screenwriters to unionize. And you have a man who is alone, a man who basically has nothing besides his work. And he's a widower. His wife was an actress. She died young. And he meets a young woman who looks very much like his wife. She reminds him of her. And an affair is sparked between the two of them. And this affair becomes all-consuming for De Niro's character, Monroe Starr. He's obsessed with her. And his obsession with her comes at the expense of his work. And it's strange because... And it's a flawed film. A very flawed film. And one of the big flaws in it is... The love story basically ends up becoming the center of the film. And even though De Niro is totally enamored with this woman, you never really know what he sees in her besides the resemblance to his wife. And he says early on in the film that he never really knew his wife. He, only, he didn't get close to her until she was sick and dying. 
So maybe he gets, maybe he sees this young woman as a chance to do it over again, to do it right. But that's never really explored. And at the same time, you have this young woman played by Ingrid Bolting, who doesn't really bring much to the table. She seems, she seems somewhat interested in him. She seems to be, you know, she's along for the ride. But she doesn't really bring much beyond that. And so the story is taken over by this, this romance, this love story that is basically just superficial, uh, while at the same time being a bit of an ode to the old, the old Hollywood, the studio system of the 30s, when studios were very prolific and cranking out dozens of pictures a year. Uh, but in any case, this affair becomes all-consuming, like I said, but it's an ill-fated affair. Ingrid Bolting breaks it off, and De Niro is devastated, and he responds by getting hammered and sabotaging a meeting with the labor organizer. You're a very good employer, Mr. Starr, but uh, we still think that the position can be rationalized. I'll tell you three things. All writers are children. 50% are drunks, and up till very recently, writers in Hollywood were gag men. Most of them still are gag men, but we call them writers. Uh-huh. But uh, they're still the farmers in this business. They grow the grain, but they're not in at the feast. It looks to me like a try for power, Mr. Brimmer, and I will not give them power. I'll give them money. I won't give them power. Anyway, they're not equipped for authority. And it ends up costing him the only thing he really has, which is his job. It's not a terrible film, but it is very flawed. Again, the love story is very superficial. There really isn't much going on there. But it ends up taking up the bulk of the film, unfortunately. The character of Monroe Starr that Robert De Niro plays was actually based on Irving Thalberg. Irving Thalberg was basically a wunderkind, much like De Niro's character in the film. He became head of production at MGM at the age of 26. Um, he worked there through the 20s and, and the 30s, and he died young uh, in 1936 from pneumonia at the age of 37. And the same goes with De Niro's character in the film. He's a workaholic, and he's basically working himself into an early grave because he has nothing else in his life. Makeup and hair here? Yes, Mr. Yes, Star. Yes, Mr. Star. You made it look like an angel. I don't know how you've done it. Congratulations. Thank you, Mr. Thank Star. Thank you, Mr. Star. Those uh, French girls, they really, uh, they've really got depth. They really know what it's all about. Yes, I think they have depth. Who wrote that scene? The English writer Monroe, Boxley. It's the last thing he wrote before, before he left. What a great going away present. Whoever heard anyone say, nor are you? Has anyone ever said, nor are you to you? Nor are you. Hmm. Nor are you. We'll have to rewrite the scene or reshoot it. It's absolute crap. People don't speak like that. Do I have any writers around here who understand the way people talk? Norman. Yes, Monroe. Put four writers on that scene tonight, and I want to see the rewrites before they shoot it. Sure, Monroe. But it's, it's, it's fascinating and disappointing at the same time because it is such a ridiculous assembly of talent. Just the cast alone. You have Kazan, of course, who's directing. You have Pinter, who's writing. And you look at this absurd cast. You have De Niro. And the film, for all its flaws, it, it does have a great performance from him because he's, he, he lost a lot of weight for the part, for one thing. And he does a wonderful job of sort of conveying that the loneliness and his melancholy without having to do very much. He hits all those marks. He shows you all those colors without having to go sort of above and beyond, without having to be, you know, there's nothing big about his performance. And it, he's wonderful in this, despite the film's flaws. And Kazan had some interesting things to say about working with him and sort of getting him prepared for this part. De Niro is anything but a uh, uh, college-bred well-read, 
Jewish intellectual of the 1920s. He's a, he's a street kid from around here. And what we did was we had three weeks of improvisation in which he gradually was made to work in an office and to have the peculiar psychological way of thinking that uh, Monroe Starr had. Uh, when a question was asked him, you always felt that his answer was a partial answer. When he listened, you always felt he was thinking something that he did not reveal in his answer. I had also trained Bobby to do something that young men today don't like to show, which is that they're afraid of, that they're shy with women, afraid of women. Uh, Bobby's not. Well, that's a whole new way of behaving for Bobby. And the end of it, Bobby performed a miracle. And so you have De Niro in the lead. Robert Mitchum plays uh, one of the studio bosses. And Robert Mitchum, for those who don't know, again, shame on you. So many great performances. Out of the Past, Night of the Hunter, Crossfire, the original Cape Fear with Gregory Peck, uh, it goes on and on. And he shows up in this. Jack Nicholson plays the union organizer, the labor organizer, who's trying to get the, uh, the screenwriters to unionize and form a writer's guild. Uh, Teresa Russell shows up as uh, Robert Mitchum's daughter, who has feelings for Robert De Niro's character. Unrequited feelings, unfortunately. So when do you go back to college? I've just got home. Get the whole summer off. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll go back as soon as I can. Well, don't you want to? Well, I don't know. I'm pretty well educated. Maybe I should get married. Well, I'd marry. I'm lonely, but I'm too old and tired to undertake anything. Undertake me. What? Uh, Jeanne Moreau, the great French actress, and Tony Curtis play co-stars in a film that De Niro is producing in the film. Jeanne Moreau, iconic French actress, was in uh, Elevator to the Gallows and Julie Jim, Bay of Angels, Bay des Anges. Nobody does melancholy like Jean Jeanne Moreau, and she plays a, a, really, a real diva in this. That was really very good indeed. You think so? It was absolutely terrific. It was really wonderful. It was shit. And Tony Curtis, Jamie Lee Curtis's father, uh, was in Some Like It Hot, the great film The Sweet Smell of Success. Donald Pleasant shows up as well. Speaking of Pinter, he had done Harold Pinter's play The Caretaker, both on stage and screen. Ray Milan shows up in this. He was an Oscar winner. Dana Andrews, who had worked with Kazan on Boomerang almost 30 years before this. Ingrid Bolting, like I said. Her performance I do not like, and neither did Pinter. Uh, and she wasn't the first choice to play this. We're going to talk about that a little later. But she, is, she really doesn't bring much, much to this role. Kind of robotic and sort of, I don't know, the love story just fails completely, you ask me. Teague Andrews, this guy named Teague Andrews, he plays another studio big shot who is supposed to be of Greek descent. And it's another fucking shithead, wannabe, cartoonish Greek performance where he just sort of puts on this this vague foreign accent, just keeps shouting that he's Greek and calling everybody communists and fairies. It's like, this fucking stinks. Go home. Thank God there isn't much of him in this. I'll say that. So he stinks. A lot of other great actors show up in this as well. John Carradine has a small part as the tour guide at the beginning. He It's a short... It's a brief but memorable appearance. Seymour Cassell, who we talked about a lot in our John Cassavetes episode, he shows up in a small part in this, another great scene. And a young Angelica Houston shows up as well. So you look at all this talent that was brought together to make this film, and it it, it misses the mark. It was not well received. The film lost money. And Kazan didn't like it himself. He did not like the love story, and I think he blamed Pinter for that. And Pinter didn't like Ingrid Volding's performance, and I believe they were right on both counts. So yeah, just disappointing. But still a wonderful performance from De Niro. And this was the same year that he had done Taxi Driver, oddly. And in 1976, this was another important year for Kazan, uh, but for the wrong reasons, unfortunately. Uh, during the making of The Last Tycoon, his mother died. And he had been very close to her. 
And it was her that had supported him going to college as opposed to taking over the family rug business, much to his father's chagrin. And uh, this proved to be Kazan's last film. And there's, an, there's a documentary made about him that came out in the early 80s called Ilya Kazan, An Outsider. And in this film, so this was some years after The Last Tycoon, he, he still intended to keep making films. And he, had, he was in his, early, in his early 70s at this point at the time this documentary was made. And he had said that he, he had intended to make three more films and write three more books. And then he would be, he'd be happy, he'd be content. Although he continued to write, he kept putting books out. He never made another film. He, I know he had tried to get money raised for a few projects and they ended up falling through for various reasons. But The Last Tycoon ended up being his last one, his 19th film. And like I said, he continued to write, and then in 1980, his second wife, Barbara Loden, died of cancer. Barbara Loden had been in Wild River and Splendor in the Grass. She had worked with Kazan twice on screen, was a wonderful actress. She was in After the Fall as well, the play that he directed for Lincoln Center. And Barbara Loden was also, had also become an independent filmmaker. She had directed the great indie film, indie film called Wanda, which came out in the late 70s. She had wrote and directed and starred in herself. Uh, and in 1980, she ended up dying of cancer. She was in her 40s. She was a young woman. Kazan was married three times over the course of his life, and uh, his first two wives both died well before their time. As with his first wife, Molly Day Thatcher, Kazan and Loden had a tumultuous relationship, and I believe, although he was supportive of her during her, her illness, I believe he was very present in her life uh, when she was undergoing treatment, and I believe they were kind of on the outs before her death. And in 1982, a couple of years after Loden died, he married his third wife, an English writer named Frances Rudge, and uh, the two of them remained married until he died. So after that, we go further further into the 80s. In 1988, Kazan puts out a memoir titled A Life. And again, it's this sort of fascination with himself. It's an 800-page memoir. Although he is very very candid and very forthright about his betrayals, his affairs. And uh, it's, a, it's a read that I recommend, especially if you want to hear about the sort of nuts and bolts and how the sausage was being made on both the stage and with his films as well. And in 1991... Another tragedy befell Kazan. In 1991, his oldest son, Chris Kazan, who had written The Visitors, died of cancer. He outlived his eldest son. And then in 1999, when he was pushing 90 years old, the Academy had chosen to give to award Kazan with an Oscar, uh, a Lifetime Achievement Oscar. And this brought back the controversy of his testimony before the House of an American Activities Committee in the early 50s when he named names. And so Kazan went to the ceremony to receive the award, Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro introduced him, and leading up to the event, there were actually protesters and picket lines being formed in condemnation of him receiving the award, and I believe there were, there were also picketers who were in favor of him receiving it, so there was a whole fuss about it, and Kazan and his wife, a close eye was kept on them uh, leading up to the event just for their own security and so on, and it raised a big fuss, and Kazan, when he finally went on stage to receive his award, got a very polarizing reception. You had some people, including Warren Beatty and Meryl Streep, who gave him a standing ovation or, and were, were applauding him. Others stayed seated and didn't applaud at all, including Nick Nolte and I believe Ed Harris. So even decades, decades after Kazan's testimony, he remained a very polarizing figure within the industry. And on September 28, 2003, Kazan died of natural causes in his Manhattan home at the age of 94. And so that marked the end of a life, one that Kazan actually describes as several lives rolled into one. And I want to talk about the impact he had for a minute before we try to understand Kazan as a man. I mean, you look at that, that Oscar he got, the Lifetime Achievement Oscar, I mean, if these awards are given out strictly based on artistic merit and artistic impact, I mean, then there shouldn't have been any debate because his impact, both in the cinema and on stage, were immeasurable. 
and for the craft of acting. Keep in mind, we talked about this in part one, he co-founded the Actors Studio in the late 40s. And it was a workshop that developed a whole new technique for acting, one that relied on sense memory, drawing from within for one's performances, and it brought a whole new generation of actors, many of whom Kazan cast in his films. Marlon Brando, James Dean, Ava Marie Saint, Mildred Dunnick, it goes on and on. And it remains a beloved and revered acting workshop to this day. And not just that, he worked with, like I said before, I know I've mentioned this a few times, he worked with some of America's greatest playwrights ever. Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller, William Inge. And he gave their most important works, their first stage productions. He directed All My Sons and Death of a Salesman for Arthur Miller. He worked with Tennessee Williams a bunch of times, did Sweet Bird of Youth and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Streetcar Named Desire. He worked with William Inge, like I said, directed the, the Dark at the Top of the Stairs in the late 50s before they worked together on Splendor in the Grass. And these playwrights are all still revered today. And not just that, he was a very important social critic at a time where there weren't many in Hollywood. You look at his early films, and Kazan himself said that it, was, it wasn't until after his testimony that he started doing his best work on screen. But even before then, like you look at films like Gentleman's Agreement, Tackled Anti-Semitism, Pinky talked about racial prejudice, racial identity, passing, and well before Stanley Kramer showed up as a director, because he had become sort of, he was, a, he was known as a big social critic in Hollywood with his films, but he didn't come to well after Kazan. And even after Kazan's testimony, I mean, on the waterfront, a lot of people see it as rationalizing his testimony to the HUAC. I don't look at it that way at all. I wish he hadn't testified and given names. I don't agree with his decision to betray people for stances they had held 15, 16 years prior. I know I've talked about this before. And I don't think on the waterfront is a sort of justification of that. But I'm just using it as an example to show that even after his testimony, Kazan was still a dedicated social critic. I mean, on the waterfront, if nothing else, exposes union corruption on the docks in the, in the longshoremen's unions. And not just that, even after that, I mean, he did a face in the crowd and it was very prophetic. It predicted basically what a powerful medium television would be and how it could be used for nefarious purposes, what an effective delivery system it would be. And he was bang on the money with that. Him and Bud Schulberg together, they, they, they worked on that one together and it's a fantastic film. We talked about that in part two as well. And even Wild River, just examining the Tennessee Valley Authority, the sort of traditional way of life in rural Tennessee that's going extinct in the face of progress. The new dam is being built, the electricity is being brought to the area, the residents have to be relocated, and their land is being bought up. And so well after he testified before the House of Un-American Activities Committee, these were still, Kazan still touched on a lot of the social issues that were he thought were important to him. And he gave a lot of important actors their, their start on screen. I mean, Marlon Brando, Streetcar Named Desire, was only his second film ever, and it was that film that basically cemented him as as a leading man in Hollywood. It was his, break, his breakout performance. He gave Jack Palance his first film, his first film credit on Panic in the Streets. He cast Ava Marie Sainton on the waterfront, Joe Van Fleet with East of Eden, James Woods in The Visitors, James Dean, Warren Beatty, like we said before, Lee Remick, who was in A Face in the Crowd, and later Wild River. He gave a lot of actors their, their big breaks on screen, and rightfully so, with, uh, you know, the exception of Warren Beatty. I kind of enjoy shitting on Warren Beatty at every opportunity, so. Now, while Kazan's impact as a director, as an artist, is undeniable, getting to the bottom of Kazan as a man, as a person, is, uh, a lot more complicated. I mean, he called himself a massive ambivalence, and I think that is accurate, but we're going to get to that in a little bit. From a young age, he sort of kept to himself, and he talks about feeling like an outsider in a variety of ways. Of course, being an immigrant and coming to America. He had a difficult relationship with his father. He was much closer to his mother. 
I was frightened of my father and did whatever he said, whether it was right or wrong. I never thought when he said, do this, I did it. He sent me on errands that uh, I've never sent my children on, and so on. So I had a, I had a problem with him, and uh, uh, my films are full of father figures of one kind or another. And he grew into a young man who basically didn't give much away. He wasn't an loquacious type, didn't do a lot of talking. But he was known for giving these sort of probing looks and having a sort of broody disposition, a broody demeanor. And he was an enigmatic figure. And this feeling of being an outsider, I mean, it followed him to college. I mean, he talked about how he sort of, he was different because he had to, he had to work through college. He had to pay his own way. And he never felt like he was one, one with his classmates. I mean, his, his white classmates who basically didn't have to work and were being supported by their parents. And he never really felt like a part of those circles, and he didn't make he didn't make very many friends in college, from what I understand. And it's interesting that he went from this young man who never felt like he was one with the crowd to someone who basically became fascinated with himself. <laughs> in fact, quite enamored with himself, I would say. I mean, we talk about the novels he wrote and the fiction he wrote, and all of it is basically is based on his own life, his own personal experiences. He wrote an eight hundred page book about his life. And not just that, he adapted his first novel into a film that is basically chock full of parallels to his own life. It's all about me. That's all the book's about. Some experience of my own in one way or another. And so Kazan was very much someone who seemed to be kind of fascinated with himself. And he had, he had also had long stints in, in psychotherapy where, you know, you basically just get to talk about you for an hour at a time. So, you know. And it's interesting. We talk about the, his testimony before the, the House of American Activities Committee. And it's still, again, even 40-plus years after he had done it in the court of public opinion. I mean, the, the verdict was still very, very divisive, very polarizing. Although I wish he hadn't done it, and despite the fact that he maintained long after he did it that he felt he was doing the right thing, that he was morally in the right, and that he had sort of condemned the ideology and a lot of the communist re regimes that had taken hold in Eastern Europe, it appears as though, I mean, just based on my research and what I've been able to read from various accounts, he was very torn on deciding to do it. It was something that he had wrestled with for a long time, and it seemed to be, uh, from what I've read, a very difficult decision for him, but uh, not one that I condone. And like I said before, he was a man of contradictions. He's a self-proclaimed mass of ambivalence. They, they show up in many ways, these contradictions. I mean, he was, he was a man who, who was appreciative of America. He was grateful to America and what it brought him. But at the same time, he never felt 100% American. He never felt like a real American, of course, being an immigrant. And of course, again, it's this, this notion of, of being an outsider again that comes up. And again, we mentioned this before, that he enjoyed being a family man. He enjoyed being around his kids and being married and having a home and a support system and a sort of base that he could go back to. But at the same time, he was also a serial adulterer and he enjoyed having affairs. And in fact, felt that they were sort of necessary to keep him alive, to keep him vital, to keep him from stagnating. I don't know, maybe it kept him, he thought they kept him from falling into the sort of emptiness that we see in Kirk Douglas's character in the, in the arrangement. And also, despite his supposed appreciation for the family life and the home and all that, uh, he also liked to be able to just sort of drop everything on a whim and take a trip and take some time to himself abroad in various parts of the world. I'm, I'm glad that I have this anchor here, that I have this place where, that, to which I can always come back, which is my home. I'm glad I have children that are loyal and loving. At the same time, I like from time to time to leave, to go live in Paris, to go live in Athens, to go travel, to go to uh, Nairobi in Africa, to go to Iran. I went to Iran there, to go to many places. And it's stimulating and necessary for me. If I don't have it, I dry up, you see. So uh, uh, this whole thing has been a problem uh, where I want to be absolutely free and I also want to be sheltered. I don't know. He just it seems like somebody who always wanted it both ways. You want, he wanted it all, it seems, I guess, if I can, if I can put it in summation. 
And despite his sort of, I mean, he was forthright, he was very candid about his transgressions in his books, and in many letters that he wrote as well. But he was also hard on himself in some areas, to be fair. Uh, namely, with his testimony to the House of Un-American Activities Committee, and in also in assessing his own work. Again, a man of many contradictions, but also someone who was nothing if not self-aware. And his relationships with women were very complicated. Again, he and Molly Day Thatcher, his first wife, were married for over 30 years. They were married in the early 20s. They had met at Yale. They were married in 1932 until 1963 when she died suddenly. Molly was a writer, a script reader, a uh, wonderful mother. She was a uh, great help to me, uh, a great critic, sometimes too harsh. But uh, she was someone that uh, made life lively and uh, interesting and important. And I owe her a great debt. She died abruptly all in one day. I left in the morning. When I came back, she was dead with a brain hemorrhage. And he had cheated on her left and right. He had had many affairs while he was married to her. He and Molly Day Thatcher had four kids together. And he had cheated on her many times. He had an affair. He had an affair with an actress named Constance Dowling, which lasted from 1940 to 1945, I believe. And I believe he broke up with her by leaving her a note, if memory serves, which is never a good look. But in any case, that was a lengthy affair. And like I mentioned before, he had had an affair with Marilyn Monroe. And he had actually confessed to it in a letter to his wife. He had written Molly Day Thatcher talking about his affair, although I don't believe I don't believe he mentions her by name in the letter, but he confesses to stepping out on her, and it's a, str it's a strange thing. It's a, he apologizes for hurting her, but at the same time, he doesn't rule out the possibility that he's, that he's, that he's going to cheat on her again, so he's almost like, yeah, I'm sorry I hurt you, but he's, all, he's also kind of setting her up for further disappointment. Again, not a good look. And again, he, he said he would probably do it again, and he did. Like I said, after Marilyn Monroe, I mean, he had he also had an affair with Barbara Loden. The two of them carried on an affair for quite some time while both of them were married, and the two of them had a son together. So Molly Day Thatcher died in 1963. He and Barbara Loden weren't married until 1967, and the two of them remained married until 1980, until she died. My second wife, uh, Barbara, uh, she uh, she's the author of Wanda, the film that won a prize at Venice. And she was also, she was from the hill country. She was a mountain girl in origins. Uh, very tough, very strong. Uh, completely different from Molly, but completely the same kind of person. A formidable person. Both of them were very strong women. She was an actress, too. A very good actress. A very good actress. She's in Splendor in the Grass, and I think she's marvelous in it. And uh, she uh, was a very talented director. And she was just coming into her own when she died, too. So. I've had these two tragedies of uh, wives who died before their time and before they fulfilled themselves. And it's interesting, he was known as, I mean, if you look at Kazan, I mean, he's not what anybody would call sort of conventionally handsome. But nonetheless, he was known as a pretty relentless pursuer of women. He was, he was a womanizer, Kazan. At the same time, I think, I think he felt insecure in both his marriages. I think both these women intimidated him, in a sense. We talk about this, Kazan feeling like an outsider. Both his first two wives kind of kind of reminded him of that, in a sense. Molly Day Thatcher came from, I believe, a well-to-do family. Her family had a lengthy history at Yale. And she was your classic American white woman. And Barbara Loden, even though she and Molly, she wasn't from the same part of the United States as Molly Day Thatcher, she, again, was your, your classic American white woman. They were both part of uh, the sort of clan that Kazan felt excluded from, oddly. So maybe that played into those tumultuous relationships. I don't know. I'm just speculating. I mean, what the, what the fuck do I know? Let's be honest. I'm just thinking out loud, really. But in any case, like I said, he was an aggressive pursuer of women. And it was strange, too, because, again, feeling like he wasn't, he wasn't one, of the, one of the group, one of the, one of the clan, that sort of feeling that followed him throughout his life. 
he enjoyed pursuing women who were who had partners who were unavailable and i think he took great pleasure and great satisfaction in wooing or stealing a woman away from her partner and oftentimes he did it to women who were dating or married to people he was acquainted with or friends of his and i think ultimately maybe i don't know maybe his those first two wives were constant reminders of his out, outsider status when he wasn't you know trying to sweep married women off their feet <laughs> and despite these messy relationships with his first two wives Kazan was supportive to them in different ways and at different times in their lives. I mean, Molly Day Thatcher, we mentioned in part one, she was a playwright. And Kazan collaborated with her on a number of, of theatrical productions and bringing her, her plays to the stage. And as we mentioned before with Barbara Loden, when she was sick with cancer and was undergoing treatment, he'd stay in the hospital with her. He was with her through through all her appointments. And so even though their relationship had hit the rocks, he was he was a sort of consistent presence toward the end of her life for whatever that's worth. He and his third wife, Frances Rudge, the two of them remained married until until his death in 2003. And years later in 2017, a woman named Carol Drinkwater alleged that Kazan had sexually harassed her and attempted to rape her in the mid-70s when he was casting The Last Tycoon. And there's a story about this in The Guardian. You can find it online if you want to know the details. Initially, Drinkwater wouldn't name him directly. She had made some allusions to the experience in a novel she had written called The Lost Girl. But eventually it came out that it was, it was revealed to be Kazan and so on. And in the mid-70s, when this alleged incident took place, Carol Drinkwater was a young actress. She had only had one small part. I think she showed up in, as a nurse in A Clockwork Orange, if memory serves. And she had been up for the part of the young woman in The Last Tycoon, the, the role that was eventually played by Ingrid Bolting. And Drinkwater was a trained actress. Not only was she up for the part, but she was, according to her, she was, she was a frontrunner for it, to the point where Harold Pinter, the screenwriter, and Sam Spiegel, the producer, were actually collaborating with her, and they were keeping her in the loop as to what, what they had in mind for her character and so on and so forth. So it's, it seemed as though she was a shoo-in for the part, and they were going to have her do a screen test, which was common practice back then. And before the screen test, she had met with Kazan. She had met him in his office. They had arranged a meeting. And according to Drinkwater, they, they had started doing a bit of the script together. And he abruptly pinned her against the wall. He started kissing her neck and sort of aggressively coming on to her. Of course, she was taken aback. I mean, and he said, well, if you, you need to show that you have passion if you want to play this part or something or other. And apparently this carried on for a week, Drinkwater says. And so ultimately, later on, the day of the screen test comes, and Drinkwater went to her dressing room. Kazan knocked on the door, came into her dressing room, and, and basically tried to force himself on her. And she was basically able to shake him off, said something about, you know, she had to concentrate on her lines before the screen test and so on and so forth. And she was so shaken up by the, by this, this encounter, this incident, that the screen test proved to be disastrous. She froze completely. And later that night, Kazan actually called her and asked her, to, asked her to meet him at some hotel. And she ultimately ended up talking to Sam Spiegel. Spiegel basically was upfront about it, said that her screen test was disastrous. And the two of them ended up later meeting for dinner. Spiegel asked her what had gone wrong. She told him what had happened with Kazan. According to Drinkwater, Spiegel reacted as if he had heard this story many times before. And she claims that Spiegel told her that Kazan thought that she didn't have what it would take to make it in Hollywood and he was going to prove it to him. As if to say that this, one, this entire incident, this whole, this whole thing had been planned as a way to sort of set her up to fail. And I don't believe Drinkwater reported it, and she never made it to Hollywood. The role ended up going to Ingrid Bolting, like I said. Although Drinkwater continued to work as an actress for quite some time, and she became a novelist as well. Keep in mind, the alleged incident happened in the mid-70s, so this would have been 1975-76. Kazan died in 2003, 
and Drinkwater didn't go public with the allegations until 2017, so legally I don't think she has much recourse. And because this incident basically happened behind closed doors, I mean, you know, there isn't much in the way of sort of witnesses, and, and pretty much everybody who was related to the incident or who was around at that time, I mean, whether it's Spiegel, whether it's Pinter, I mean, all those people are basically dead, so there's no one really alive that can corroborate Drinkwater's story, I don't think. That said, it is certainly not outside the realm of possibility that Kazan had done this. He had a taste for younger women, Kazan did. Barbara Loden was over 20 years younger than he was. Marilyn Monroe was quite younger than he was. His third wife, Frances Rudge, was, I think, close to 40 years younger than him. And Kazan himself admitted that uh, he was quite taken with younger women. He found them irresistible. So it is certainly possible that he was attracted to drink water at the very least. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, basically all we have to go on is, uh, is drink water's word. Again, like Drinkwater said herself, a lot of these things happen behind closed doors. And so I hate to end it on that note, but again, I try to give a comprehensive look at uh, the lives and the works of these directors. And also, I go in chronological order. I go from beginning to end. These allegations surfaced long after Kazan died, so I had to end it on this. And like I said, you can find out more about this, uh, these allegations from Carol Drinkwater uh, in that story in The Guardian. You can find it online easily if you'd like. And so that marks the end of our trilogy on Leah Kazan. A man of many, many talents, but of many flaws and many contradictions. And so with that said, I'm going to take a bit of a break from the show. Like I said, I'm reconfiguring the format. I'm still going to make a director the focus of every episode, but I'm going to sort of, I'm going to try to condense it and distill it to a handful of movies that either have a, a thread, a pattern, a recurring theme that sort of ties them together. And so I'm going to take a bit of time, relax, spend some time on my other creative pursuits, and I will be back later in the month of January with this reconfigured format, this new show. And so in the meantime, please take a listen to our previous episodes of the Elia Kazan Trilogy, catch up on our old episodes as well. We've covered John Cassavetes, Ida Lupino, Jean-Pierre Melville, Robert Benton, George Roy Hill, Carol Rice. And like I said at the top of the show, you can find us on the Spotify, the Apple Podcasts, the Google Podcasts, and the Podbean. And you can follow us on the Instagram at Close Set Podcast. Close Set Podcast is the handle. And you can email us with any questions, comments, feedback, criticisms, concerns, and all that stuff at closesetpod at gmail.com. That's closesetpod at gmail.com. And until next time, Happy New Year. All the best to you. I hope this year is much kinder to all of us than the previous two have been. And all the best to you, all six of you who have been listening. <laughs> and uh, until next time, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. But my real desire now is to make uh, three films, and uh, one of them which I write myself and two others which are being written for me, and uh, to complete three books, and that's a life's work ahead. I'm 72. I hope to get through those six projects, and if I do, I'll be happy. Um, and as I say, one of them is a film that I've written myself about things that are close to me, events that are close to me and meaningful to me. So uh, let's see what happens. I hope I live that long.